This is an ABC podcast. Today, the Inland Rail promised to transform regional Australia, but after years of work, just 300 k's of 1700 has been built. I think most of it was done desktop, to be perfectly honest. I think they just looked on Google Maps and went, no problems here, keep going. Kayaking to school might sound like awesome fun, but these kids are delighted. Crossing the river is no longer part of their daily commute. Oh, it was it was horrible because the water would be so cold and that, and you just get on and we'd go across on the paddleboard, so you have to kneel down on your knees. Me and my sister are on the back, and sometimes Mum would have to get in the water and pull us across. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country. The loss of Murphy's Bridge during the Black Summer bushfires two and a half years ago was devastating for families in the small town of Cadgee in New South Wales. Without it, they had to do about 64 extra kilometres for the daily school run and were cut off from services and support. When the cost of fuel became too much to take on, some families started ferrying their kids to the school bus stop in a kayak, including through more than one cold winter. Reporter Holly Tregenza caught up with the Colburn family after they finally got their bridge back. Everything was just black and black and dirt and it was horrible and it was scary. and Yeah, you just didn't know what we were going to find. Um, Coming down to this bridge here that's now been replaced, it was just smouldering at that stage. That's Deb Colburn from Kaji near Bodella on the south coast. Three generations of her family live on a bush property near the Churras River. And when the Black Summer bushfires came through almost three years ago, Murphy's Bridge, Kaji's only connection into town, was burned to the ground. After the fires, we were stuck here. That's Kira, Deb's daughter. We had to make makeshift bridges. Um, We had no power for like three months. If it wasn't for having such a big family and strong connections and having that help, I don't think we would have got through. At first, the family made a temporary crossing, but it was soon washed away in the first of 15 floods that would impact the area over the next two and a half years. Once the river was unpassable, the big problem became getting the kids to school. We had no school bus run, so the kids either had to get a canoe across the river and get on the bus from here, but then that road was deemed unfit for the bus to travel on. So the other alternative was to go uh, to about 10, 15 kilometres down river to meet the bus, and that had to happen twice a day because you had the high school run in the morning at 7.20 and then the primary school run at 8.20. So in total, the girls ended up doing about an extra 64 kilometres a day for the last two and a half years to get the kids to school. It was a whole lot quicker so you could get to work straight away if you canoed across instead of driving all the way to Waincourt. But um, yeah, it was an experience for the kids. There were some mornings they got on the bus and they weren't too happy, but they're pretty resilient, our kids. We're pretty lucky, really. Oh, it was, it was horrible. You're hearing Kira's 12-year-old daughter, Kiana. Like, because the water would be so cold and that, and you just get on, and we'd go across on the paddleboard, so you have to kneel down on your knees, me and my sister are on the back, and sometimes mum would have to get in the water and pull us across. So I imagine how cold she'd be. 
while the physical scars of the fire remain on the bush and the psychological ones remain for those who lived through it, the new Murphy's Bridge is helping this community move forward in more ways than one. Well, we had the whole community came down and had a bit of a barbie on the riverbank. Um, yeah, and we all did the walkthrough, had a drone fly over and, yeah, it was celebrated with a cake. We all, like, really appreciated the guys that nutted it out and stayed here and got the job finished. But um, it was like, you, you know, you've been locked in a cell and the gate was open at last, yeah. That's quite something. Reporter Holly Tregenza speaking there with Kaji resident Deb Colburn. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. The $14.5 billion inland rail project is seen as transformational for regional Australia. Thousands of jobs have already been created with millions of dollars flowing into towns along the route. But after years of work, just 300 kilometres of the 1,700 kilometre line has been built. The federal government is set to announce a review of progress following claims short-term politics and rushed planning have compromised the railway. National Regional Reporter Nathan Morris takes up the story. We're making sure that Australia exists away from Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne. When it comes to the politics surrounding the inland rail, former National Party leader and Minister for Infrastructure Barnaby Joyce has been front and centre for years. It was through the coalition agreement in 2016 with the Malcolm Turnbull-led Liberal Party that Mr Joyce secured the first major funding of $8.4 billion for the project. Mr Turnbull wanted Western Sydney Airport, well I wanted the inland rail and now we've got the money, we don't want to lose the money, we want to build it, they've started on it, let's get the thing done. Since then the Australian Government has invested up to $14.5 billion in the inland rail. And we want to make sure it's delivered, not so much for the National Party or for me or for anybody else, but for the people who live along the line. But late last year, a Senate inquiry into the inland rail tabled its report, titled Derailed from the Start. The report raised concerns about transparency, questioned the business case and the ever-increasing cost, which it said could blow out to over $20 billion. Uh, Nothing is a perfect outcome. And people who, if, if you're going to make the perfect enemy of the good then you won't have a railway line. However, the Senate report findings were consistent with the observations of Cameron Simpkins, a former project director at the Australian Rail Track Corporation, the company building the project. The documentation, it was very clear that it had been done in a rush. Rushed? It should have happened like 1950. If I followed the not rush process, we wouldn't be building it at all. Cameron Simpkins says when he arrived, many at the ARTC were surprised that they'd secured the project. It, it certainly appeared like you know, two guys of the Commodore listening to KC and the Sunshine Band, you know, roaring up the road beside the railway going, yeah, it's OK, it's OK, it's OK, it's OK. Let's move on. I think most of it was done desktop, to be perfectly honest. I, I think they just looked on Google Maps and went, no problems here, keep going. At one point, he says an independent engineer was brought in to assess the plans for the project. All the culverts have been stripped out to remove the cost. All the level crossings have been stripped out to remove the fencing. um, The kilometres and kilometres of fencing hadn't been included. So none of that had been included in that initial cost. But was any infrastructure like culverts, fencing, like fundamental stuff like bridges ever stripped out of the project to keep costs down, as far as you're aware? Um... I think that everything was sort of investigated for efficiency, but I, I don't believe that that was, that was stripped down. I think uh, in any sort of quantity, you know, quantity surveyor process, uh, you, you look for value for money. Roughly 300 kilometres of track has been built since 2017, and all but 5.3 kilometres of that is upgrades to existing railway lines. 
According to the ARTC, about $2 billion has been spent so far. Catherine King is the Federal Minister for Infrastructure and Transport. A lot more has been spent on this project than was originally budgeted for uh, and it is well over original budget and well over time. I think the previous government uh, was trying to have us believe that it would be open and finished by 2026-27. It is clear that that is absolutely not going to be the case. There is a broad acceptance that an inland rail will be needed to meet East Coast freight demands which are forecast to double in the next 20 to 30 years. Barnaby Joyce again. Uh, getting this thing built is of primary importance. I, I know how governments can work. I can take you to even dam sites where they put in the footings, but they never built the dam because the things delay kills it. There are two pending reviews of the ARTC's flood modelling yet to be made public, and the now Labor government promised a review of the project before its election earlier this year. Minister Catherine King says she's finalising the terms of reference for that independent review. It will be a short, sharp review. Really what I'm looking to do is get a real handle uh, on where are all of the problems along the route and where is a pathway to actually resolve some of these problems. And, you know, we may not be able to fix everything, but there's certainly, uh, as we saw through the Senate inquiry process, there are still some significant community concerns. Federal Minister for Infrastructure and Transport, Catherine King, ending that story from Nathan Morris. And you can see more on this story on Landline this Sunday, or you can always watch it on iView. For eight days, some of the busiest streets of Wollongong and New South Wales were still to make way for some of the world's best cyclists. The city plays host to what was one of the largest annual international sporting events, the UCI Road World Championships. More than a thousand of the world's best cyclists descended on Wollongong, hoping to secure a prized rainbow jersey. Now... The cyclists have packed up their expensive bikes and gone home. But as our reporter Tim Fernandez reports, locals are hoping the globally televised event will translate into more visitors to the region. Sarah Roy has been competing as a professional cyclist for more than a decade, but the Sydney rider says nothing in her career could have prepared her for winning her first world championship medal on home soil in front of her family and friends. To get a bronze medal in that is just, yeah, that's a dream. Like now I have a world championship medal. So it was just such a nice feeling and it was probably one of the best days of my life actually. For eight days, the New South Wales city of Wollongong hosted the world's largest travelling cycling event, the UCI Road World Championships. Australian cyclists failed to win a coveted rainbow jersey but claimed four medals, one more than the last time the event was hosted in Australia 12 years ago. It's when you don't win a race to still believe that it was successful. But I feel like it was really successful. But days before the start of the races, Australia's medal hopes were dealt a blow when star rider Jai Hindley tested positive for COVID-19. Initially, I was just a bit, like, a bit disappointed because I thought potentially I wasn't going to be able to do the world. The West Australian was grateful he only suffered mild symptoms and was able to link up with his teammates. It's really not like every day you get to do the world championships in Australia. Maybe, you know, maybe it comes around once in your career. So in the end, I was like, I was really just happy that I could be there. Around 100,000 spectators lined the streets of Wollongong to watch the 26-year-old battle with the best cyclists in the world in the elite men's road race. The support of the fans was really really incredible like everyone really got around the race but really got around the Aussie team as well 
yeah, you can definitely feel that on the road, like the atmosphere is just electric. Despite the large crowds on the final weekend, the event attracted 100,000 fewer spectators than the organisers had expected. New South Wales Minister for Cities Rob Stokes travelled to Wollongong this week where he announced plans to install a commemorative marking along the length of the course. He says the event was always geared towards exposing Wollongong and New South Wales to an international audience. We were always expecting this to be mainly about the global television crowd and that's really what has put the Illawarra on the global map and I think we'll see over the months and frankly years ahead the impact that will have on tourist flows. Dario Trevisi is the director of the Fraternity Club which was positioned along the course and was cut off from its regular trade for most of the week. We were hoping to break even. Obviously trade in the club has been you know, affected because we were closed. We couldn't actually operate from you know, have our people coming into the club all day and and all the other usual activities that we have, even weekend weddings and functions. Mr Trevisi says he feels for businesses impacted by the road closures, but he believes the event will benefit the region for years to come. Revenue is not the issue here in the big picture. The big picture is what type of legacy could we leave with the people of the northern suburbs and Illawarra and far beyond. There are also hopes that the World Championships will be a launch pad for future success of Australian cyclists, both at home and abroad. There's been a big change within cycling for Australia and we're in a better place than a couple of years ago and it's actually a really exciting time going forward and we can look forward to the next World Championships. I think we're only going to get better as a collective Australian team. Tim Fernandez reporting there from Wollongong. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Now to WA's North, where a young family are raising money for a good cause while also turning heads. James Brougham sailed his blue yacht, Salty Jocks, from Fremantle to the beachside Pilbara town of Dampier with his two young daughters, Hallie and Isla. He'd never sailed when he'd bought the boat, but learned so he could take his girls on the adventure of a lifetime. The trio are living aboard Salty Jocks for the summer before continuing north, but in the meantime, Mr Brougham has decided to fundraise for the Royal Flying Doctor's Service by running while pushing his girls in a wheelbarrow. The goal is 500 kilometres over the month of October as part of the RFDS Oceans to Outback Challenge. He spoke to Pilbara reporter Kelly Godgen about the unusual activity. Basically, you can pick whatever distance you want to run or bike. I'm going to run 500 k's with the girls. We're just going to give that a crack. So when you say run 500 k's with the girls, you've got two little children here. Um, Tell me how old uh, your children are. Uh, Hallie's six and Isla's two. I've got the wheelbarrow to get back into training and uh, it's worked out quite well. So you're running 500 kilometres around the Pilbara or around Karatha here with your kids in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, they, they enjoy it. Like, um, we've, we've already been doing a lot of training and they don't mind it at all. It's panned out a lot better than I expected it to. You've so. got a pretty nice setup for them there. I mean, there's a big comfy cushion in there and they've got their, their teddies and... Yeah, um, yeah. You know, like, they're pretty comfy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, they're fine. And if we get the running done, I think before the sun's too high in the sky, I don't think they'll get too hot. Plenty of snacks and service station stops will keep them happy. <laughs> so how far have you run already with them? I guess I've done like a 
maybe a few hundred k's with them already in the wheelbarrow. That's amazing. And the uh, and the Saturday park runs and everything. The 500 is going to be a push because it's at least 120 k's a week we're going to have to do. And you're raising money for RFDS. How much yeah. have you raised so far? Uh, 1600. So we put the goal as a thousand, and then within a day or two, we'd already reached the goal. I think it might have been a day we reached the goal. So then I, I've upped it now, and uh, and we just keep going and see how, see how much we can raise for them. Now you said you sailed up to Dampier. Tell me about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, we come from Fremantle, and originally we were just going to go to the Abrolhos, and then that really escalated because once we we sort of got to Geraldton, then we can make it out to the Abrolhos, and once we've done that, we're like, okay, we can make it to Shark Bay. And then we just kept going and yeah, it was a real steep learning curve, that's for sure. How long did it take you? You can do it quicker, but it took us four months, roughly. And that's with stopping on the way. And the Ningaloo coast was really tricky. And even in Shark Bay as well, we got hit with some fronts and things that made it a little bit challenging. But yeah, we learnt and we figured it out on the way. Yeah. How do you go with young children on a boat for that long? Oh, they're fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be any different in a house. Like the kids don't leave you alone one way or another, regardless. (laughs) Yeah, Isla's got a, a child seat that I've bolted into the cockpit so I can strap her into it. And Hallie's, you know, she's so responsible and uh, everyone's wearing harnesses and things like that. And they're consistently occupied. Yeah. Like the amount of whales and dolphins. Some days it was just constant, you know, especially on the way to um, Shark Bay. You have whales following you for like an hour and a half. What an you incredible know. experience for yeah. you and the kids. So what made you want to get on a boat and sail up the Pilbara Coast? We moved onto the boat at the end of July last year. I didn't know how to sail when we bought the boat and I just wanted to show the girls. I knew that there was this whole other life out there that we could um, that we could experience and I suppose a lot that I'd seen as a kid growing up with my parents. So yeah, we got a bit of sailing in and I, I renovated the boat and, and kitted it out for cruising and that took some time and then April this year, yeah, we left for the Abrolhos and that's what started it and it's become very, very hard to turn back and to stop, I guess. Many people uh, turn around and head south for summer, but you've decided to head north. Yeah, well, <laughs> we'll wait here. If there is a cyclone or anything, we've got a plan for that. But it shouldn't be too bad. We'll get some, some fans and things on the boat. We are on the water as well, which would be a bit cooler. But all the guys we sailed up with that are heading back, like they're all getting smashed on the way home. I didn't particularly want to do 2,000 nautical miles all the way back to Fremantle just to do it all over again, you know, in April next year. We'll stay here for summer and then we'll be able to go straight into the Kimberley at the end of the cyclone season. So planning to sail around Australia, is that is that what the plan is? Um, we'll just, we'll start at the Kimberley and we'll, yeah, <laughs> see we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll just see how, how far we get. Hey, Hallie. Yeah. Tell me what you think about sailing from Fremantle to the Pilbara. What was that like? Um, it was pretty cool. It was like... 100,009% cool. And what do you think about Dad raising all this money and pushing you around in a wheelbarrow? Is that fun? Pretty cool. It's pretty fun. <laughs> What's been your favourite part of the journey on the boat? The whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing? <laughs> yeah. And you get to spend all this time with your sister and your dad. Yeah, and our toys. <laughs> I love our, I love my monkey. And yeah, I love fishing. Wow, six-year-old Hallie Brom there with her dad, James, and sister Isla. And they're raising money for the Royal Flying Doctor Service over the month of October. That is some dad. That's quite an extraordinary thing to do with his girls. You can read more about their adventures online. Just head to the ABC News website. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. 
The Northern Territory is famous for its outback cattle stations and being a ringer from the top end has become an iconic job immortalised in song by Slim Dusty. But like all jobs, sometimes things don't go to plan. Matt Bran caught up with some of the young guns of the Territory's cattle industry who shared their favourite station stuff-up. And who doesn't love a stuff-up story on a Friday? Hi, I'm Joe from Brunette Downs Station on the Barclay. A few weeks ago, I was at Eva Downs during peak forage budgeting, um, trying to get back to the compound at 5pm. Got a flat tyre, jacked up my ute, it's a Hilux. Um, got my spare tyre out, which was a Land Cruiser 5 stud tyre. Whose fault was that? Uh, I think the mechanics had a bit to answer for there. <laughs> and so what did you do? <laughs> Um, I had to leave my youth there for a few days, had to get a new tyre from Brunette Downs, had to get rescued by the manager. Hey, Jan, um, I'm Sean, I'm from Delamere Station, the head stockman there. Um, so I rolled in back to Delamere there at the start of last year and the boys had come up to me and said that there was something missing from the workshop and I had a look around, couldn't really work out what it was. Um, anyway, the next day they, they, didn't, they didn't want to tell me anything and I went for a drive around the horse paddock there and I noticed that there was one Toyota stuck out stuck out on a fence. I thought, oh, that's a bit funny. What's going on out there? Walked out there. He was bogged up with the eyeballs. I then drove up a little bit further, and then the tractor was bogged, in, bogged, and then there was a motorbike just ahead of it and a buggy. I just went back and, yes, lost it for a little bit. But we got them out. <laughs> <laughs> How long do you have to wait until you got them out? Uh, it took a month. A month? Yes, a month. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else can do the job like a ringer from the top end. Hi, I'm Jimmy and I work for the NTCA, running the Real Jobs program. And this station stuff up isn't my yarn, but um, I heard it last year. And it was based at Warn Hill Station, where they had 3,000 heifers ready to get trucked off. And tourists went through and left the gates open. And they lost 3,000 heads straight into the National Park, (laughs) never to come out again. So yeah, that would have been a pretty costly station stuff up, I reckon. (laughs) I'm Henry Ponder, I'm the pilot at Newcastle Waters. Staff up, sort of leaving the station, keen to get to a draft, and I swear this person looked familiar but sort of disregarded it. And um, (laughs) he was on the side of the road, changed your time, like, I don't know anyone else that could be around here, sort of left him, kept going. And um, then I get a call from my uncle saying that he's just at the pub up the road from the station, if you want to catch up. I was like, oh, I'm in Catherine now, sorry. And um, he's like, I've had a shocking day, eh? And I was like, oh, you're kidding. And, uh, and, yeah, it turns out I left my uncle on the side of the road. To turn the and um, yeah, I owed him some beers after that. My name is Danielle Darcy. I'm from Olpenia Springs. Uh, I, it's not my stuff up, but one of the guys that I work with. Um, so we have this uh, paddock is called Nobby Nana and it's got a hill in the middle of it and it's probably the hardest hill to get up on the whole of the property it's like a very narrow road to get up top and the top's kind of flat so the cattle can walk between the two paddocks on the top of this hill so my dad told one of the boys to take some lick bags up there and hang them on the fence to like deter the cattle away 
Anyway, so he he put some lick bags on his bike and rode up the top of this hill and put them on the fence. And my dad called him up and he's like, what the hell are you doing? It turns out that he'd taken three 20 kilo full bags of lick <laughs> and put them onto the fence instead of empty ones to kind of blow in the wind and get rid of all the cattle. So he got nicknamed Lick Bag from then on. <laughs> Yeah, g'day, I'm Ollie Thorne, I'm with Austrex. A um, couple of years ago, prior to working for Austrex, I was on the Barkley, um, chasing a bull through some pretty thick lancewood and I uh, hit a big tree stump on a 230. Um, the bike stopped and I kept going. Um, my nuts went straight into the, the fuel tank. <laughs> yeah, I jammed them pretty hard and she blew up as big as a tennis ball. Um, Took me trip to Tennant Creek, trip to Catherine, and trip to Darwin before I got flown down to Sydney, and uh, and they saved her. So. I'm Some ringers there from the Northern Territory sharing their favourite station stuff-ups. And on that note, I will leave you. That's Australia-wide for this week. Thanks to Maddie Snow for her help these last few days. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.